We're looking at Matthew chapter 27, and we're looking at verses 55 through 66 this morning of Matthew chapter 27. I think this is the very end of Matthew 27. Next week, we begin Matthew 28, the final chapter in this book that we've been in for three plus years. So the finish line is in sight. We'll pick up the final chapter starting next week. But this week, we're looking at Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 through 66. And before we open and hear God's Word read and hear it preached this morning, let's go before Him one more time in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word Thank you that you have shown light in the midst of the darkness. And we pray that even as you promised, that your spirit would attend to your word this morning, that a better sermon would be heard than what I have prepared, a better sermon would be preached than that which I speak. Your Spirit would take this living Word and that it would take it and sow it in our hearts and our minds and our souls. And all of the distractions of this room and all of the distractions that cloud our minds from the previous week or that are clouding our hearts, thinking about the things later this day or later this week, that they would quickly dissipate. We would find that we are caught up into the heavens themselves as we hear the word read and preached. And that when we leave this place, we would know that our God has spoken to us. Make these things clear. By your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 through 66, this is a holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. 
So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. There are different truths that comprise the Christian faith, and there are different truths that I think some we give more attention to than others. There are some that, that very much shape our thinking and shape our living. They very much shape our preaching, and they shape our talking, and they shape our lives, and they shape our conversations with one another. There are others that we too often, I think, neglect and often don't speak about or talk about or allow to shape us. We often speak about the life of Christ. We speak about the death of Christ upon the cross. We speak about the resurrection of Christ. We speak about the ascension of Christ. But seldom, I think, do we often speak about what's in this passage and what Matthew is conveying before us, which is just as essential, and that is the burial of Christ. This is part of what we believe are the essentials of our faith. We do this when we confess the Apostles' Creed together, on, often on Sunday mornings, that old creed that goes all the way back to the early centuries of the church where we will confess that Jesus Christ was dead and buried and descended into hell, and the third day He rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven. We confess that together with one voice, and we confess that with all the saints that have come before us. In that most clear of passages, I think, in 1 Corinthians 15, where we have the most clear telling of what the apostles' gospel message was that they proclaimed when they went out. The apostle Paul says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's part of the gospel. When you and I speak of the gospel, we are speaking of the life of Christ, the death of Christ upon the cross, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ for sinners. But that burial is often neglected and seldom spoken of and seldom talked about. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at this essential part of the gospel message, the burial of Christ. I want to do it this morning in a number of ways. First, what I want to do is look at the, the scene that we have here and the people that are brought to the forefront of it. So let's look at that setting. And then what I want to do is look at the burial of Christ in three ways. I want to look at the significance of his burial. Second, the genius surrounding his burial. And then third, misunderstandings that often accompany our understanding of his burial. So we'll look at the setting, look at the scene here, and then we'll look at the significance of his burial, the genius surrounding his burial, and then the misunderstandings often associated with his burial. So first, the scene. When we come here to verse 55, we're at the foot of the cross. Jesus is 
has died upon the cross. And as Matthew tells us here, there are different people that are on the scene and that are observing the death of Christ upon the cross. But there are some missing people. There are people that you and I would expect to see there in this passage that we don't see. You think about the disciples, at least the 11 remaining, you would expect to see them here at the foot of the cross. You would expect to see them at least at a distance from the cross. We see in other Gospels that the Apostle John was there at least for some time, but it's very clear that he wasn't there much longer than for some time, and all the rest of the disciples were not there. They've all fled. These men that have walked with Jesus for three and a half years and have observed his ministry, have listened to his teaching, they're not to be found at his death. They're gone. When we read the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, after Jesus has been raised from the dead and as he makes his appearances, it becomes clear where the disciples are at. They have hunkered down together in an inner room in a house. No doubt because they are anxious because this Lord and this one that they believe was the Christ and the Messiah and possibly their Savior, he has now been condemned as a criminal and he has died. And they are in some ways rightfully in fear. And they're cowering in fear in that inner room. And yet our passage begins with Matthew telling us about some disciples who had courage. Matthew says that, quote, many women were there looking on at a distance. They were watching as Jesus died upon the cross, and they are there at the tomb when he is buried. The the male disciples have fled, but the women are there. And he mentions some of the more prominent women. He says Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that is John and James, they have courage. And they're sitting there at a distance as their Savior has died upon the cross. And then they will sit at a distance as he is buried in the tomb. We're meant to see their courage as we look at these passages. It's no small thing. The gospel writers are all pointing this out when we get to this part of the gospels. And it is no small thing that the writers of the New Testament, in a day when women were considered less trustworthy, they were considered less honorable, they were considered less needed, are brought forth time and again throughout the gospels as crucial servants in the kingdom of Christ. And not just crucial servants, but here where there is testimony that he died and that he was buried, it's their testimony. I've often thought, well, I've read different feminists who have lobbed grenades at the New Testament writers and they have accused them of disparaging women. They're not reading the same New Testament that I'm reading or what we're reading this morning. These were courageous women and women that Matthew is highlighting. They have a faith-filled courage where the disciples are on the run. The other individual our attention is drawn to in the text also comes forward in faith and courage, and it's Joseph of Arimathea. 
This is the first time that we hear his name in the gospel, let alone that we've seen him act in any way in the gospel, and there's a reason for that. John tells us in his gospel in John chapter 19, verse 38, that Joseph was a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, secret disciple? Why was he a secret disciple? And John tells us in chapter 19, verse 38, he tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ because he was fearful of the Jews. So here is a man who is hid in the shadows, though he has believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, is hid in the shadows because he has been fearful of coming forward in faith because he is fearful of the Jews that he has surrounded himself with. And yet here, when Jesus dies upon the cross, this man exercises incredible courageous faith. Incredible. How? Well, you'll remember that Jesus died on Good Friday. And he died on the afternoon of Good Friday after three hours upon the cross. Now, Sabbath began Friday evening. When the sun goes down, the Sabbath day began. And when the Sabbath day began on Friday good evening, it would go all the way through Saturday evening. And no work was allowed to be done on the Sabbath day. So if you were going to remove Jesus' body from the cross, if you were going to do that work, it had to be done before the sun went down on Good Friday. But maybe even more importantly, in Deuteronomy 21, we have in the law where God says anyone who hangs on a tree overnight, that the, that man is cursed and that land is cursed because he is hanging on a tree overnight. And so very much motivated by this, Joseph of Arimathea sees that Christ has died upon the cross, and there are only a few hours to get him down from the cross and to bury him quickly. Now, the Roman authorities could care less. They would often allow a man that was put upon a cross to deteriorate upon that cross for days and weeks after his death and allow the different birds of prey to come and pick apart his flesh as it laid there deteriorating, as it falls to the ground, have different animals come and consume it. They could care less, especially because these are criminals, so who cares? But Joseph of Arimathea cares. And so he does the courageous. He approaches Pilate, the Roman authority, who had authority over Jesus' body here hanging upon the cross. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, we are told in other Gospels, was a member of the Sanhedrin. That is, he was part of that religious council that we saw before in the Gospel of Matthew that condemned Jesus to death. Though we're told in the other Gospels he wasn't there when they issued this verdict. But yet he is still part of the Sanhedrin. This is his people. He is a man of authority, a man of prestige, a man of position, and this is his tribe. This is his posse that has condemned Christ Jesus. And in incredible courage, 
This man who hid in the shadows before now walks out when this Lord of glory has died, when this one that everyone was looking to as the Christ and the Messiah has died, that brings him forward and he comes forward and he approaches Pilate and he stands to lose everything. He stands to lose his prestige, he stands to lose his position, he stands to lose his friends, he stands to lose his wealth as he identifies himself with this criminal that has just been put to death. And ask for his body. That's courageous faith. How do we explain that? I don't know. If you and I were to look at the scene just weeks before, and we had looked at the disciples, and we had looked at Joseph of Arimathea, we would have thought that what we see happening here in the gospel would have been the exact reverse. You have the disciples sitting at the table with the Lord Jesus, and to a man, to a man, they say, we will not betray you. Though all deny you, Lord Jesus, we will not deny you. They are men of faith, men of courageous faith. A bold proclamation of their faith. And yet Joseph of Arimathea is scared to come forward in faith. When frankly it's much safer to come forward in faith during that time. He's scared to. But now that Jesus has died. When it is much scarier to come forth in faith. He's just been condemned as a criminal. Then the disciples don't and Joseph of Arimathea does. How do you explain that? I don't know. What I do know is that we know far less about one another than we think. And we need to think far less of ourselves than we know. True faith is also accompanied by humility. And I want to make this point just because there's been so much conversation over recent months about this within our circles. Be careful in your judgments about your Lord's fellow disciples. Be careful in your judgments of them. Would have thought absolutely the disciples have courageous faith and when the moment comes they will shine it and we would have all condemned Joseph of Arimathea and yet when the moment came when there was true, true persecution that could happen and true death, it's Joseph of Arimathea that comes forward and stands to lose everything. I don't know. I don't understand it. I know that we know far less about one another than we think, and we need to think far less of ourselves than we know. True faith is always accompanied by humility. Humility in my judgment of you, humility of your judgment of one another, and humility in my assessment of myself. We seldom know who will rise when the occasion presents itself. Church history is filled with surprises, filled with surprises. Joseph, in an act of faith-filled courage, he takes Jesus' body. He quickly prepares it for burial with a new clean linen shroud, and he places him within his own prepared tomb. The tomb Jesus was put in for burial was most likely a cave. It was 
some kind of chamber. A boulder may have been rolled in front of it, but more likely what we see in the Gospels is that it was a stone. It would have been like a millstone or a circular stone because it appears that this was a much fancier tomb. And that stone would have been this stone that was circular and there would have been a cut slit in the rock and it would have had a downgrade in the rock so that it would have been easy to push easier to push this this cylinder stone that was incredibly heavy in that slit and the gravity force would bring it down into its place but it would make it almost impossible then to to push it back up and to make it recoil Jesus here was buried in such a tomb or such a cave. Now, that's the scene. That's the setting. Now, why does all of this matter? What is the significance of the fact that Jesus was buried? Why is it that you and I, when we gather together on a Sunday morning, we will often recite together the Apostles' Creed and we will say that he was buried? Why does that actually matter? Well, there have been those throughout history that have argued that Jesus didn't truly die, that he went into some kind of unconscious state, or he went into some kind of sleep or some kind of coma, and then he was placed in the tomb and he was revived. Or maybe he wasn't even placed into the tomb, he was just revived when he was brought down from the cross. And why is that the contention that some have made in history? Because if he didn't die, then there couldn't be a resurrection. You see that even in this passage, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they have approached, they have approached Pontius Pilate and they said, look, we've got to make sure that we've sealed this tomb and we've got to make sure why. So that what he said about himself, that he would be raised from the grave, doesn't actually come to fruition. So they can't make that argument. And so, they were concerned about what he claimed about himself. Because if he was actually raised from the grave, then what he claimed about himself and what he said about himself being the Messiah and what he said about himself being the Christ and what he said about himself being the Lord and what he said about himself being the Savior, then you actually have to believe it. If he raises from the grave, then you've got to believe what he said about himself. So what is Matthew doing when he's telling us that he was buried? Well, he's providing us eyewitnesses. He's saying, look, these women that were at a distance from the cross and saw that Jesus died, these are the same women that are at the tomb and see that he was buried. Joseph of Arimathea, who saw him die, also buried him. But you see, what Matthew is doing, he's, be, he's bringing forth an even greater witness. Those are witnesses, but there's a greater witness. He was buried. How do you know he died? He was buried. It's the seal upon death. You don't bury somebody unless they died. And this is a witness for all time that he truly died. This is no magic act. This is no figment of the imagination. This is no hex, no hoax. Jesus truly died died. 
and was buried. Significance of his burial. Second, let us notice the genius surrounding the burial of Jesus. The genius surrounding the burial of Jesus. We're told there in verse 62 that the Pharisees and the chief priests, that they approach Pontius Pilate and they ask for that tomb to be secured. They are afraid that Jesus' disciples will steal his body, as we said, and that if they stole his body, then they could say that, look, he prophesied that he would be raised from the grave, and look, he was raised from the grave. And they're saying, look, the second hoax will be even more severe than the first hoax. The second lie even worse than the first lie. And what are they talking about? They're talking about, look, the second is his resurrection. He said that he would be raised from the dead after three days. And that will be worse than him actually claiming to be the Messiah. Because why? Because his resurrection will prove what he said about himself, that he's the Messiah. And so Pontius Pilate, would you help us? Would, could we station a guard around this tomb? Pilate will refuse to send his own troops to seal the grave, but he tells the Jews to send their own. And most likely what he is referring to is the temple police that the Jews had. They had police that were in the temple, and that makes sense here in this passage. Pilate is saying, I'm not sending my soldiers, you can send your own. And that makes sense because when Jesus is raised from the grave, those soldiers that are around the tomb, they don't go to Pontius Pilate to report it. Rather, they go to the chief priest to report that Jesus has been raised from the grave. And so it makes sense that these are probably temple police. But it's fascinating to me just how fearful these religious leaders are and continue to be of Jesus. They were afraid of him while he was living, and now they continue to be afraid of him, though he is dead and he is buried. And so they're going to work. They're going to plot, and they're going to plan to try and make sure that no one is affected any longer by this one that they had condemned and this one that they had put to death. But little did they understand that all their world, worldly sinful plotting was but providing the grounds for the greatest evidence of Christ's resurrection. There is genius, genius in what God ordains here as it all comes together. I was watching a, a video the other night of uh, about a symphony composer. I find symphony composers to be some of the most human beings, uh, amazing human beings on the face of the planet, besides worship leaders, John. Uh, but they, they just amaze me. I, I don't understand it. Maybe that's why it amazes me. I, I don't understand. You, you write down notes on a piece of paper for the violins, and then you write other notes down for trumpets, and other notes down for violas, and other notes down for trombones, and other notes down for drums, and other notes down for bassoons. Who even knows what bassoons sound like? And they write down notes for them. And yet... Some way, all of these different notes, which by themselves just seem so random and just seem so disorganized, they come together in the end and they all come together and they create something that's not only good, 
but something that's beautiful. It just lifts your spirits and can fill your mind and fill your heart. They're establishing guards at the tomb. It's, it's one little sad note. You would think, here they are again. Here they are again trying to oppose Jesus and the world is plotting and it's planning its way to try and nullify this Christ and this Savior and yet it is all part of the symphony that God has arranged. What they mean for evil, God will actually work for good. There is absolute genius here. They want to disprove any deception by Jesus' followers. And so they did. And it's brilliant. It's wonderful. They put guards at the tomb. Here we have enemies, and not just enemies, but we have interested enemies. Enemies that are so opposed to this Christ and Savior, they are going to stand on guard, stand on alert guard to make sure that no one steals his body. So that for time and time and eternity, there is always the witness, even from the very enemies of this Christ, that he was raised from the grave. No one stole his body. His enemies are on guard to make sure it doesn't happen. He was raised. Wish we knew this and understood this. The events of this world, they feel like so much randomness and disconnectedness and even hostility, and they are simply part of God's symphony playing His tune to His glory over and over and over. So often see this in retrospect in history. The world thinks it has the upper hand. It thinks it has planned and plotted and schemed so as to defeat the kingdom of Christ, but the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. When the apostles were persecuted so as to stamp out the faith while it was small, that simply led to the spread of the faith throughout the entire known world. When Paul was in prison so he couldn't minister to people in prison, it only led him to writing epistles and ministering to even more people than he could do in person. When Christians were led into the Colosseum and they were fed uh, hungry lions in a Colosseum, it only caused hunger in the spectators that were watching and saying, why would these people give their life like that? When communist China erupts and it sends out every missionary from the country and it burns every Bible it can find and every Christian book it can find so that it can squash Christianity and hide it from its people, tens of millions of Christians will come to saving faith over those decades. The world never has the upper hand. Friends, the kingdom of God does not face setbacks. The kingdom of God does not face setbacks. He is always, always accomplishing His purposes, 
always working regardless of what our eyes tell us. He was buried. You think of all moments, this is it. He dies upon the cross and he's buried. There is no more devastating, drastic, discouraging hour than this. And yet he's using this to accomplish his purposes. Genius. Finally, let us look at what is often misunderstood about his burial. Jesus was in the grave for three days. What was he doing? There's been those that have argued in the history of the church that Jesus during those three days went to hell. And that is not the case. Scriptures are very clear. He did not go to hell his body was in the tomb. His spirit was with the Father. He says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is clearly heaven in Revelation 2. It was said there to the church in Ephesus that, quote, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And where is the tree of life? But in the heavens, the paradise of God. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12 there about being caught up to the third heaven, he will say that he was caught up to paradise. Jesus' spirit goes to be with the Father. But even more importantly, Jesus could not have gone to hell. Hell is a place of torment and forsakenness. It's a place where the penalty of sin and the guilt of sin receives the wrath of God. Jesus could not have gone to hell and suffered under the wrath of God there. No, because he suffers it upon the cross. And what are his dying words upon the cross? He cries out, it is finished. The payment's been made. The, the wrath has been taken. He doesn't Go to hell. He says to his father in Luke 23, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His spirit is with the father. His body is in the grave. He said, but wait. Now, Jason, you just quoted at the very beginning of the sermon that we did the Apostles' Creed. We confess that he was buried and he descended into hell. Why do we do that? Why has the church done that for since the early centuries of the church? It's not that he went to physical hell. I think our confessional tradition in Reformed circles is incredibly helpful here. I think both traditions, both the Continental and the Presbyterian, the Dutch Reformed and the Scottish Presbyterian, I think they both have something that's helpful here. Remember Danny Hyde, a, a pastor out in California, pointed out to me years ago that they both present different views, and yet they're not mutually exclusive. They actually, I think, taken together underscore what we're trying to say when we say that he descended into hell. 
The Westminster Confession, when it explains what does it mean that he descended into hell, it says that it is referring to Christ's burial. You say, but we just confessed that in the Apostles' Creed. He was buried and he descended into hell. Isn't that redundant to say he was buried and he descended into hell also means that he was buried. And the Westminster divines, those who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, would say, no, 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 no. What it's trying to do is underscore the fact that not only was he buried, but he was under the, the dominion of death, not just for a temporary time, but for three days. He was buried. He descended into hell. He, he was under the dominion and the power of death for three days as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. That word hell, we translate from the word Hades, and that word can mean death, it can mean grave, it can mean physical hell. He descended into death, he descended into the grave for three days. The Westminster is focused on Christ's body, whereas the Heidelberg Catechism is focused on his spirit. And the Heidelberg Heidelberg understands that Christ descended into hell is trying to explain the experience that Christ had upon the cross, the pain that he endured upon the cross. Truly, we can say that what he experienced on the cross was hell. We could even go further and say it is the most hellish of hells. Because it was the very Son of God who knew intimate union with His Father for all eternity is now drinking the cup of His Father's wrath to the very bottom. It is the most hellish of hells. And so the confession, Westminster, is looking at His body. He was buried. He was truly under the dominion and the power of death for three days. The Heidelberg is saying, look, what He experienced in His spirit upon that tree where he was receiving the wrath of his father, he truly experienced hell. But Jesus did not descend into a physical, literal hell. That is not what we believe. That is not part of the gospel. In closing, I want to offer just a few applications as we think about his burial First, I want you to understand this, that everything is working together for His glory and for your good. You shouldn't get too low by the things that you see happening in our world. I feel like too many of us are too caught up right now, too anxious, too worried, too caught up what we see in the news, what we see in our culture, what we see in our backyard, as if he isn't still enthroned. As if this one who on the darkest of days, when he was dead and buried, wasn't actually using that for his purposes. He's using everything for his purposes. Everything. Now, that doesn't mean we have to rejoice in everything that's happening. But it does mean that we're always walking around with our eyes fixed upon Him in glory. 
It means that we are always hopeful for his working and what he is doing. That means that we don't get too low. We don't get discouraged. We sure as heck don't get depressed about it. Our God reigns, and all this creation is but his symphony, and it is singing his song, whether this world knows it or not. Second, I want to meddle a little bit here. I'm going to meddle. There's a new thing, it seems like to me, in the last 50 years in Christian circles in this country at least. We see more and more Christians cremating bodies. Cremation, I don't think, is a sin. But I think you've got to think through it. Our Lord was buried. It wasn't just his spirit or his soul that mattered. It was also his body. You and I are created body and soul. One is not more significant than the other. We are body and soul, one person. Our bodies are just as important as our souls are. And as our bodies were taken from the dust, they returned to the dust so that they might again be taken from the dust. Christians for centuries, for centuries, because their Savior was buried, they were buried. It was pagans who burnt bodies because the body didn't matter. But not Christians. They showed honor to the body and returned it to the dust. They buried it and showed it respect. But not pagans. They burn it. In Scripture, fire is often the sign of judgment. You see, our bodies are being raised to new life. Like I said, it, I don't think it's a sin, but I think you've got to think about it. I understand all the things that are going into this. I understand the economics, but you've got to think about this more than just by economics. You've got to think about it theologically. There is a real benefit to us burying bodies and there being tombstones for centuries upon centuries that say, look, this person believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and is waiting for the resurrection of the dead. They went into the ground even as their Savior went into the ground, and they believe they will be raised even as he is ra was raised. There's a living testimony in graveyards. I understand the economics. I've told my family, listen, I don't, I don't care how you bury me. You can put me in a pine box with a few carpenter's nails. It doesn't matter to me. Don't spend a lot, but put me in the ground. I have a dear family member that really wants to be cremated. And so we talk about this over and over. And I keep having this discussion with them and they still want to be cremated, but they made the mistake of making me the executor of their estate. <laughs> and I keep telling them that. You may want to change this. I don't think it's a sin, but I think you've got to think through it. You've got to think through it more than just economically. You need to think through it theologically. Next, dear Christian, I, I hope you don't have any fear of the grave. You're to have no fear of the grave. 
There is not a fiber of my being that fears the grave. Not a fiber. Now, I fear how I'm going to die. I don't want it to be painful. I don't want to have to suffer too much. But death, there's not a fiber of my being that is scared of that. Being put in the grave, there's not a fiber of my being that is scared of that. And if you're a Christian, you shouldn't either. Why? Because our Lord preceded us. The light of the light of the world went into the darkness. He was buried. And he trailblazed the path, and his light was brought into that darkness. He has sanctified the grave for you and I, so that it is no longer a threat. We don't come under the dominion of death. We've been set free. It is, as the apostle says, that's why we can say, oh, death, you've lost your sting. The grave is no threat at all to you and I. The moment we are dead, we are with our Lord and our Savior, and we know that our body is going to be raised from the grave, that as it went into the dust, it shall come forth from the dust and shall be reunited to our souls when He returns upon the clouds, and we shall forever live body and soul before Him. There's not a doubt. The grave is not a place of fear for you. For some of you, it's a place of fear. I've sat with many people over the years that they are afraid of death. If you're a Christian, you should have none. If you're not a Christian, you should have a lot. But here's the great promise of this passage. Is in this very moment, right now in this room, you can be set free from that fear. Set free from that everlasting fear. Thinking about what the gospel writers often do here at the end of the gospel, they tend to highlight these two individuals, Joseph of Arimathea, and though Matthew doesn't do it here, he did it in a passage we saw a couple weeks ago. The other gospel writers will pick it back up, but the centurion. You have the centurion and you have Joseph of Arimathea, and why is it? Why do we have these two at the end of the Gospels? And at least it seems to me as you have the centurion who is the Roman beyond all Romans. He is part of the enemy of Christ that condemned him and put him to death. He is the Gentile of Gentiles, centurion. And then you have Joseph of Arimathea who is part of the Sanhedrin. He is Jew of Jews. The same Jewish court that condemned Jesus to death, that brought false charges against him. So here you have these two great enemies. You have the Roman government. You have the Jewish religious authorities. You have this man that is Gentile of Gentiles, this man that is Jew of Jews, and both of them are saved. And it's as if the gospel writers are saying to you, it doesn't matter how much of an enemy of Christ you have been. All you have to do is believe it. saved and death is no longer an enemy and the grave is no longer a threat and the fires of hell are no longer have any hold on you no matter how much of an enemy you have been of Christ lastly 
to encourage us this morning to be people of courageous faith. We'd be people of courageous faith. I want you to pray that for me, pray it for one another, pray it for yourself. We're always looking to our Savior who has been raised from the grave and seated at the right hand of our Father on high. And that all the things that swirl around in our world that we really need not have fear. And that when the severe moments come, that you and I, we will respond in courageous fear or courageous faith to our Savior. I was thinking about this this week that you have these women who are at a distance from the cross and are at the burial chamber of our Savior. And why is it they, ha they have such courageous faith there? It's because they've seen the life of Christ. And then you have Joseph of Arimathea who has courageous faith because he has seen the death of Christ. And here's the glorious thing. All the disciples will come running back. And when do they come running back? They come running back in courageous faith when they've seen the resurrected Christ. And you and I sit on the other side of all of that. We have the testimony of his life, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection. We have every reason to be people of courageous faith. Every reason. And I pray that when the moments of severest trial come, that we're looking to our Savior in faith together and encouraging one another to do so. If we do, it is truly well with our souls all our days. Truly well, because He has conquered all. He's conquered all. And all that's happening is but just singing his song, all of it. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you praise this morning. One who has all things in the palm of his hand. We give you praise, Lord Jesus, willing to live and to suffer and to be put to death and to be buried so that nothing would have a hold on us, that you might make a way for sinners into the very presence of your Father. We give you praise even as you reign above now, knowing that you have triumphed over all of our enemies, even our greatest of enemies, death. And so truly we can say it is well with our souls because we have such a great Savior. We give you praise by the Spirit which you have poured out upon us. May we live faith-filled lives before you. In Christ's holy name, amen.